0: Welcome to Season 5 of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, Volunteer President and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is agriculture. In this second episode of Season 5, we feature an interview with Rachel Schrader of Simply Crazy Farms, a small family dairy farm located in Watertown, Wisconsin. Rachel's a fourth-generation dairy farmer and currently operates the farm alongside her father, James McManama. In today's episode, Rachel dives into how the name Simply Crazy Farms came to be, how to keep young people in farming, and explains the differences between organic and non-organic farms, defines GMO, and discusses everything behind what goes into food labeling. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This is the Right Idea Podcast. So we find ourselves here today at the Simply Crazy Farm, and I'm talking to Rachel Schrader, and we're here, and I should say the whole homestead is James and Sandy McManama, and uh, Rachel and Jesse Schrader. That's like everybody that's involved in the farm, correct? Yep. Okay, yep. good deal. And the Simply Crazy Farm, tell me about the name and where it comes from, because it's a unique one.
1: Sure, so back when I was still in college, I believe it was, It was still just under my parents, and I think it was J&S Farms they had it named. Okay. Or just James and Sandra McManima. I don't think it really had an official name. My dad was just a sole proprietor. Okay. It wasn't a corporation or anything like that. And we were trying to think of a farm name, and we were trying to think of what best fits us and how we farm. and. We always said that we do things very simple around here. We are not extravagant, we don't have brand new equipment, we just like to be simple and we're happy with it. Um, But we also think that we're a little bit crazy to still want to be farming and doing this all day every day. And so we were kind of just piecing ideas together, writing them down on a piece of paper, at milking one night. And my dad comes out to milk the next morning and he writes down on the piece of paper, Simply Crazy Farms, and it just stuck. It stuck. After that. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Good deal. And you had mentioned this before during your tour, but just tell us about the family history and farming and what led you all to be here today.
1: Sure. So I am a fourth generation dairy farmer here. My great-grandparents farmed about a mile away, and they actually helped my grandparents purchase this homestead here. I can't remember exactly what year, but it was in the 50s. Um, My dad did help on the farm with his dad, but they were never business partners. He even did work in town for at least a year. Um, But then when he was 19, his dad passed away. And my grandma came to him and said, do you want to farm? Because if you don't, I think I'm going to sell it. And so my dad had to make a decision right then and there when he was still a teenager. And he said, okay, let's try it. So I think my grandma did still help him out a little bit on the farm. um, Helped him get through everything. And then him and my mom got married I think she helped a few times on the farm as well. Just (laughs) a a few. (laughs) Just a little bit. But um, yeah, then definitely when they had me and my brother and my sister, we were out there as soon as we could walk, Mm -hmm. first playing, and then they put us to work right away. So it's been a good life.
0: Talk about the decision to, to stay in farming yourself. And when I talk to farmers around the state, one of the concerns that they will raise about the industry in general is attracting young talented people to farming and keeping them in farming um and i think part of the conversation we'll talk about today is the many challenges the industry faces talk about what led you to to stay in farming
1: so that wasn't always my plan uh, never in my school age years did i ever really want to come back to the farm i remember one time when i was a little girl i said to my dad dad i want to be a farmer <laughs> and he looked at me and he said rachel you are too smart to shovel poop every day (laughs) and that kind of just stuck with me and I think the reason that he said it is because he was doing the majority of the work on this entire farm Mm -hmm. by himself yeah he had a little bit of help here and there but it was mainly all him and he I don't think he necessarily wanted that exact life for me so I wanted to be an English teacher. I wanted to study psychology. So I was actually completely registered to go to St. Norbert College. Okay. Up into Pierre. And my mom and I went up there for registration to register for my fall classes. And I just had like a mental breakdown. (laughs) She said, what is happening? And I said, mom, I want to go to school to be a farmer. And I honestly thought I was going to be the biggest disappointment of her lifetime. (laughs) But she just said, okay. And I was completely shocked, but she she was with me through all of my college visits, you know, basically encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do. But I didn't think she'd want that life for me either, mm-hmm. you know. So, But no, she just looked at me and said, okay. Okay. That's what we're going to do. So I went to uw Platteville. Okay. And I took that second semester and went to MATC in Madison, just take some general classes because I got a little homesick. Sure. But that was pretty amazing because that's where I met my husband now. So it worked out. So it worked out, but (laughs) I went back to Platteville and finished my undergrad and I have a major in animal science with minors in soil and crop science and egg business. Okay.
0: Well, and your degree tells the story of what we were talking about on the tour, which is that this is a complicated business and really do really from again from machinery to finances to uh, agronomy to you name it you have to have a master and animals being a veterinarian i mean it's just it's an incredibly complicated business and sometimes around my house i have the general feeling i fix one thing and three other things break uh that's times you know a million here on the farm is that a fair thing to say
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Just before you got here, our haybine broke down twice. Um, And my dad was fixing on the combine to go start wheat. Yes, everything is always going wrong. But you come to live with that expectation. And you really just roll with the punches. And as my dad said, you just work through every day. And you get through it. Right.
0: And the constancy, too. The... I know that when we were in the milking barn, you talked about these animals have to be milked no matter what. This never stops. And so the question is, and I think this is one of the things, too, that um, people can struggle with with the lifestyle of the constancy of it. And how do you work and help and how do you make it such that it's a sustainable lifestyle? Talk about that a bit and how you manage that.
1: That, honestly, is probably the most mentally challenging aspect of this business for me because I am a wife and a mom and I do like doing things off of the farm right I don't consider this farm to be my life but at the same time it really is <clears throat> I'm here before my kids even wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and sometimes I don't see them till five six o'clock at night <clears throat> excuse right. me in that that's really really hard right on me mentally so I had to learn that I need to ask for help I do have some pretty great people that I've found to work for me Mm -hmm. and they do help me out a lot with the evening milkings so that the majority of the time I am able to be home for dinner and bedtime with my kids and my dad truly is the absolute greatest business partner in the entire world he understands that I want to be with my family Mm -hmm. he gives me a lot of grace and a lot of leeway if i have a sick kid mm-hmm. he says go no matter what so it truly is a family business we are right. all extremely close even if i'm not working if i have the day off <laughs> in quotes i'm still here right spending time with my family i don't think we really go more than a day without seeing each other ever
0: right right well it's a real collaboration between family, business, and the whole nine yards, uh, you really have to, because it, it is a lot, and it's been a constant theme of all of our conversations in agriculture, is just that constant need to be on it, whether it's animals or it's crops, like you turn your back and things can change really quick.
1: Oh so. yeah, and you're on call 24-7. Um, a few years ago, we went from milking three times a day mm-hmm. back to two times a day, and that was honestly the best decision we could ever make. And my dad, honestly, and not just from the employee standpoint, finding mm-hmm. people to milk three times a day, it was my dad would then always be the one awake until yeah. midnight or one o'clock. He would never truly get a good night's sleep right. until he would hear the milk pump shut off. Okay. And that's not fair. Right. You know, and we didn't lose that much milk by switching back to only two times a day, which just meant we had to up our management a little better, tweak the nutrition, and we're making it work. And make, and a lot work. less stress now, so.
0: So I was gonna ask about so the decision to go from so the decision to do three is that theoretically you can get more slightly more volume Correct. out of the third milking. And, yep.
1: Okay. Yep. And the reason that we did it is when my dad went from being a sole proprietor, he hired on a full time employee. This okay. was when I was still in college, and he thought in his books and numbers that he penciled out that he would need to go three times to make the payment make that work. for a full-time employee. Got it. And for a lot of years, it did work, but the truth of it is, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And my dad actually does not milk cows at all anymore, just okay. because 30 years of doing it. He's done it. Yeah. Been
0: there, done that. And
1: we don't have a parlor. We milk in our stanchion barn, so you are up close and personal, bending over... 200 times in one shift, right? You know, that's it takes a toll on your back and your knees after a while. So, you bet he no longer milks cows. So, right now, I'm the one that does the morning milkings. And as I said, he does, or sorry, I have people that do the evenings, and I'm very thankful for them because I couldn't do it all myself,
0: right? And it's you said, I think three part time staff, yep, three part time staff, gotcha. Have, and this is a question I've asked everybody from agriculture to all different industries. Um, it sounds like you've got the three people you've had for a while, or have you been affected by labor issues? Because I know it's affected a lot of different industries in different ways, labor shortages.
1: So I've been so lucky. Okay. Um, Austin, who I was talking about before, he has been with me for seven years. Okay. I had another girl with me, Sammy. She She was here seven years and honestly just left two weeks ago to take a job with her sister out in Iowa. Okay. So trying to replace her that has been my issue. Challenging. Very challenging. I was so lucky to hire someone immediately to replace her and so far he's been great. He's okay. been here about six weeks. Um, but yeah I tried to hire one more person to even fill in the gaps that I was still missing mm-hmm. and it's literally just been impossible. Really? I just gave up. Yeah.
0: And that's, I mean, that has been consistent across all different industries, and it's something that I've written on in that you're, these are the feed-ins to inflation, which I think is so important to talk about, that here you have, this is a business, you're producing a product, the cost of doing business is either one of which you're going to have to potentially pay some more to get them to show up, or the strain is being put on the business, which eventually results in one way, shape, or form in more expensive milk.
1: Exactly. Somehow, Exactly. Yep. it's It's got to go somewhere. And it's not just on the farm level where they're having these issues. It's the milk haulers. Yep. It's the people that work in the milk processing plants. Everybody is having these labor shortages. Right. So it's going to have to increase the dollar in all those places. And just unfortunately, it doesn't really ever trickle back down to the farmer.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's the issue. And I think it's important for our listeners and for consumers of, of dairy product to understand like this is it's not just dairy product, but it's all your products. This is what's happening. This is why prices are going up. This is why you're seeing scarcity issues of various things that you want to be able to buy or purchase. And uh, our push is to, you know, to regular people to put pressure on policymakers that this is not a good outcome for society. And, you know, paying people not to work turns out not ideal for a lot of reasons.
1: Yeah, definitely not. I mean they're is a pride thing that we were right. talking about before, in getting up and going to work and making something out of your day. Right. I, I don't think I could do it to get paid to stay at home. But maybe that's just me. I'm always that's a good busy, thing. always moving. <laughs> but you, you literally couldn't pay me to stay at home, right? Right. <laughs> I would have to do something.
0: Well, we're glad you're doing this because yeah. this is how people actually thanks. eat. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's an important thing. <laughs> We like to remind people of that. So in terms of, another question too, in just terms of like the feed-ins to what you have to do, uh, how are you handling gas issues and energy costs? Is that affecting you at this point, or at this point do you see that as not as much of an issue?
1: I don't really see it as a huge issue in the grand scheme of things. Um, I mean, because we don't have enough work to do, my husband, and my dad and myself are also part owners of a trucking company. Oh, okay. So that end of it, we are definitely seeing the fuel being an issue. I We bet. just don't really see it as a point to even run our truck anymore because we're not getting paid enough to haul the loads to really cover the cost of fuel and insurance and everything else that is going crazy sky high right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there again, it's again that's an inflationary effect over time. I mean if you literally can't run the truck because it's not profitable, that's a right. real problem and it's an issue and and here again you take a step back and you see like what caused this. Is it real like economic supply and demand issues or is it bad policy decisions? Uh, not putting words in your mouth, but as I look at it, it's clearly policy issues that have caused these problems. And oh,
1: absolutely. And, and so. owning that company, we've only owned it for about two years. Okay. But that has opened my eyes just to a whole nother set of business um, and labor on that end also. That's how I know it is policy-based yep. because we can't get anyone to sit in the seat of our semi for anything. Okay there's not a chance that we could afford to pay somebody what they want to be paid right Right. now and then with the rising costs of fuel and everything else as i said we we're just gonna park the truck because it doesn't pay to run it and that is going to come back on the consumer when their products cannot get delivered to the stores when they want it
0: and it's really so i didn't even know you had this company but it really is the perfect Test case for what is happening out there, and like quite literally, trucks aren't running, things are slowed down. We wonder why it takes forever to get that patio table that it's like patio furniture is ridiculously backed up. It seems like an obscure thing, but it's real. Um, uh, but yes, that's why it takes forever, and then for that, that's why it's so expensive when it does get there because different trucking companies are shutting down. The ones that are there are going to charge a premium to be able to make the run, and the whole thing is just crazy and so so yeah that's why we're having conversations like this because if you might believe this there's people out there denying that this is all happening and so we find it's important to just like talk to people we're not putting words in your mouth but just tell the story so that our listeners can then share the story with others and say hey this is real this is a problem and it's been manufactured by our policymakers. didn't have to be
1: yeah and i think it's mostly just ignorance not wanting to go out there and have these conversations they want to just sit down and watch their nightly news and feel good and pretend that everything's okay
0: well and my urge is too that reporters should be talking to people like you and you know we do this as a podcast and it's one of many things we do at no better friend and you know i still work my private sector job and i just think this is important to get this out get the story out right but if you're a full-time reporter My urge to you is instead of writing, you know, half-baked articles that, you know, quote policymakers describing or denying the effect of what they're doing, go out there and have these kind of conversations with farmers like yourself or people who own trucking companies like yourself and say, how is this affecting you in real time? And the amount of absurd things that I've read over the past however many months that would indicate, you know... Reporters leaving questions unanswered or refusing to ask the questions that would lead right. to the inevitable outcome that this has been a self-induced mistake um, in so many different respects. and Paying people not to work, driving up the cost of energy, and all in order to achieve silly policy objectives that aren't working. So.
1: And on that line, I feel, too, that reporters, they want the sob story. Mm-hmm is what I have really found too. A couple of times I've been approached to do some news segments and I've always not been available to do them, but I'm also turned off to it because they'll want to talk to me about how is the drought affecting my crops. Well, they don't want to hear that my alfalfa actually looks really good even though we are in a drought stress time right now. My corn is actually looking pretty good. And same thing when milk plants were dropping customers, Mm -hmm. when the whole grassland deal was going Mm -hmm. down. I got approached to talk to a a news station at that time. But I wasn't scared Mm -hmm. when, uh, for my market, I knew that I belonged to a Mm co-op and my market is secure. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't want to talk to me (laughs) and do the story after that. And if that doesn't prove to you that it's all biased, then I don't know what does. Right.
0: Well, you bring up a good point. I, I the kind of the farmer as victim narrative. That's a big part of you hear it. I think of left leftist politics. You hear it from reporters and so on. And it's kind of like all oh, this industry caught in a downward spiral, and everybody's depressed in the industry. And I, I take nothing away from the real challenges and also the mental health toll that that takes. I think it's very real. But what I, always, what I offer, and I'm interested in your reaction, is what farmers want is they want to be able to sell to markets. They want to be able to sell their product, which means instead of portraying us as victims, you should be out there fighting for us to be able to sell abroad, to be able to be competitive
1: exactly. and
0: to talk about that exactly. and how important that is.
1: Yeah, you basically did put the words in my mouth <laughs> because that's exactly how I feel. I absolutely hate the farmer is the victim <clears throat> narrative. I chose this life. I knew that I was not going to become rich doing this job, but that's not the point. I don't go to work every day. I literally just play (laughs) all day long. I absolutely love what I do. No day's the same, and that's what I love so much about Mm -hmm. this job. But yes, I just want to sell my product fairly in the open market. It is really discouraging that as farmers we are told what the price is going to be Mm -hmm. for the product that we sell even though it could cost us a lot more than that to produce it that is the one super frustrating thing and also the fact that there's no volume control Mm -hmm. and that's a whole nother issue that even farmers themselves will disagree on sure if there should be quotas and stuff like that but And then the labor and the immigration. That's another thing even farmers themselves will disagree on. But really, we just want a place to sell our product. We love what we do. Mm -hmm. We don't... I don't think any of us want to become millionaires off of it. That's not the point. We do it because we love it. It's in our blood. And we just want to be able to keep doing it. And right right now, especially, I feel that the smaller farmers they're really they really are getting pushed out and that's not the farmer is the victim narrative that's Mm -hmm. literally just how it's evolving the industry is evolving
0: well i want to talk about that so yeah no and i I, talk about the challenges of because there is there's the introduction of technology which has allowed scale to occur that has not occurred certainly in dairy production in the past talk about the challenges of running uh, a relatively smaller herd and how you face those down and how you deal with them
1: It's really hard because, as I said, we are pretty secure in our market um, because we do belong to a cooperative. But really, you wonder how long that market is going to be safe. Because if you think about it, they could just pick up 10,000 cow farms... And they'd be all set for their milk production. Okay. It'd be more efficient for them and their plant than picking up 200 little hundred cow farms. I don't know. It's, it's an
0: ongoing challenge. It right? is. And
1: it, as you said before, it does weigh on you mentally mm-hmm. all the time because we aren't necessarily as efficient as a thousand plus cow dairies. And we do have to work a little bit harder to get the milk that we do, but that doesn't mean we have any less passion for it. Right. And I don't have the desire to do that. I don't have the desire to sit in an office <clears throat> and manage 40 people underneath me <clears throat> and tell them how to treat my cows every day, <clears throat> how to drive my tractors. I want to be the one in control and doing everything on the farm. And I think that's where me and my dad both agree. We are perfectly happy with the size that we are. Mm -hmm. But the industry and the people that are buying our product, they don't want that. They just want to be able to get it from one place and be done
0: what we've the thing is that in other markets you have variable size producers and they bring to bear different qualities and yes you've got big scale producers from everything from beer to cars to whatever and you've got small and craft right and like so there's a place for that what i think what's different about agriculture is there's heavy regulation which makes there's all sorts of interference in the markets and then again when it comes to trade And I I think this is something farmers tried to say clearly over the past four years or so, but had a hard time penetrating and saying, like, look, one of the things we as farmers want is to be able to sell our products abroad. And we don't want to see products dumped in our country that come in with various subsidies or government advantages from other nations and all of a sudden pop up in our markets. And that's problematic. And that is a policy-driven issue in in my mind. Talk about that and, and... Feel free to disagree, but your thoughts on like trade issues and the ability to sell abroad.
1: Sure. Obviously, we do need to revamp trade, but the problem is that not everyone here is a fair player in the Mm -hmm. game, Mm -hmm. and especially China. Yeah, right. They will try and back out of deals at the last minute, and it is always not to our favor mm-hmm. and we're the ones left holding the cards. Now, I there're probably things obviously in Mexico mm-hmm. that we can't produce here, you know, and right. vice versa. So, obviously trade is a good thing and I have no problem really with them.
0: Well, you bring up China in, in particular, and I, I mean, this is this is kind of the case we're making to policymakers, and frankly, to just our listeners, so they apply pressure to policymakers, is that they should be the ones out there advocating for you and fighting for you. That is their role, and it's their role to ensure that you can get your products in, mar- or frankly, Canada. We don't even need to talk about China. Yeah, that's, yeah, an that's issue what close I was to just home,
1: thinking of, yeah.
0: That you've got an issue where there's protection occurring in Canada, which stops American farmers from putting products in and yet Canadian products can, can find their way into our markets. And this is not an argument against Canadians or Canadian products, it's an argument to say, protect the American farmer by fighting for reasonable trade terms that allow them to sell, which again, when it comes to some of these volume issues, yes, let American high quality products that you make get to other markets to include Canadian markets and, and don't allow the blocks that occur currently.
1: I could see Canada having a true problem with that just because I do believe that they have the quota system that we do not have. So, you know, seeing it from the other side, Mm -hmm. I could see their dairy farmers saying, absolutely not. If you want more milk, then take my quota away and let me produce them more milk.
0: And I guess that's part of our argument is, like, that is a conversation that needs to occur. And Mm -hmm. our problem now is that you can sell it to those Canadian markets, but still yet yeah, Canadian products find their way here.
1: Correct. Yeah. So
0: we're, our American producers are dealing with competition from elsewhere that these other countries don't see. And, you know, some part of this is American farms can produce more, they produce higher quality, like let the world partake of that. And, and yes, we understand we're not looking to flood other countries, but we do think there should be actual trade occurring, which helps our farmers find those markets for their for their product that they're making. So,
1: And there is trade occurring. Yep. Just, it definitely can be better. Just honestly, when I think agricultural trade, I automatically go to China mm-hmm. because they need what we have. Yep. And that is where I want our policymakers really to focus because they're always in control. I feel that China is always telling us the way that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And even if we do think we have the upper hand, right at the last second, they'll back out and leave just ships full of our soybeans just docked in the harbor and they're refusing to accept them.
0: Which is a penalty to their own people, but yes, a penalty to American producers. and Yeah, no, that, that is exactly the kind of conversation I'm looking to have because I think it's so important to point out. For example, the granting of permanent most favored nation trading status to China, which happened about 20, 20 years ago plus, like that allowed them massive leverage to continue to do things like this instead of holding their feet to the fire on a year-by-year basis and saying, if you do things like this, right. you're not going to have most favored uh, nation uh, trade status. And that was a great way to keep pressure up. Bizarrely, both Democrats and Republicans, around about the time this was decided, all said that it was okay to that that somehow granting them most favored trade status permanently would better their behavior, and clearly it didn't. No, no, right.
1: I don't think you can ever trust a communist country. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole litany of history make, books yes, on this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't think when they promise anything, you can trust them.
0: Nor can their own people.
1: That's exactly and what that's I was it, just going right? to say. They. Yes. The government probably tells their own people things, and look how that's going.
0: Yes, not so well. And so yes, that's our argument: is like let farmers produce, um, let markets figure this kind of stuff out. The more that that's done, the better. The more virtuous cycle for everybody in the world. And to your point, there's a lot of people to feed in China, and they do. The people want the products that are made here in the United States and elsewhere too, and we shouldn't be trying to get in the way of that. Right. Is the theory. One of the questions we've asked this of uh, both in agriculture, but also in other businesses, that we've seen the effects of COVID nineteen. Um, certainly, we talked about the policy effect of paying people not to work. But is you know the COVID nineteen issue has hit over the past year and a half plus. What have some of the effects been on your business, on everything, demand, supply, all that kind of stuff?
1: So, back when it first hit, they were talking a lot about dumping milk Mm -hmm. and that was because the processing plants couldn't keep up with the demand of the switch of products that were needed. Mm -hmm. So when restaurants shut down, you had your processing plants already making restaurant size, industrial size tubs of sour cream. Right. Well, you can't just switch out to making individual household containers of sour cream. Right. It doesn't work like that. And then again, with schools closing, so a lot, like the little cartons of right. milk, milk, those production. weren't being made anymore. Right. So it kind of had to switch into products that were being, mm-hmm. the, that were demanded versus that had stopped for demand. Right. Um, so that is a reason that milk was... Dumped. It's not because people weren't drinking it. It's because the processing plants couldn't figure out how to process it immediately.
0: Right, and get the right product needed to market at Exactly. Right. So
1: they eventually did figure that out, and things got a little bit better. We ourselves and our co-op even did not have to dump milk. So okay. that was really good. So that was never a problem for our farmers. Okay. Um, I do have friends that they themselves had to dump milk for probably a week or two. They were literally just dumping semis of milk into their manure pit. Okay. And their co-op then, I think it was split throughout the whole co-op then. So that farmer, they didn't lose money. Okay. So, you know, when you saw on the news that, oh, all these farmers are dumping milk, again, farmers being the victim, like, no, where prices great. hmm no, but at the same time, they weren't literally losing all of that money right. dumping down their manure pit. I mean, obviously, you never want to see what you're working so hard to get to just be thrown away. away, but you, they were still being paid for it.
0: Right. Well, and I think it's just a, it's a stark reminder, because I remember that, too. There was, like, press outrage, and people were upset on social media <clears> and all the rest, <throat> and it's like, well, these, this is what happens with when on a dime, entire... Ecosystems change, exactly. kids not going to school suddenly. Well, your distribution channels need to change. Exactly, and we've seen this in every business. Like, uh, we did a podcast episode with Central Standard Distillery, and they talked about, well, okay, all of our sales to bars go away, but yet our you know sales to supermarkets skyrocket. And yeah, we can figure that out, but that takes some time to understand, exactly. and yep. all the more so when dairy flows into so many different things, right? It's it's liquid milk, it's cheese, it's, to your point, sour cream, and ending up in different size containers based in schools versus restaurants, and you can't just switch all that in a dime and expect it to come out clean and immediate. Exactly. So.
1: And, I mean, for other products, you can turn off the production line. For a cow, you can't turn off the production right. line. You can't just not milk her for a right. week. So... Every day, she is still going to be milked, and does that milk have a home? Right. And unfortunately, that is what the co-ops and the processing plants, they have to figure it out. Right. So I really, and I honestly think that our co-op did a great job. They really did, because at the time, we were buying milk from other co-ops just because we needed more in some of our plants. Sure. And that stopped. mm mm-hmm. They told us that they were not going to buy outside milk and yet make our farmers dump milk down the drain. Okay. So.
0: It's a lot. It's a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, the hope is that, and I know I say the hope, that people have learned lessons from this and that while you might have good intentions, that there are so many unintended consequences to seismically affecting industries like this. And they are long they are far lasting as we see today and they don't necessarily even address the initial problem that you were trying to address in the first place and again you'd love to think that American politicians would understand command and control economies are not they don't as you said the communism the whole thing doesn't work out quite so well um so I'd love to think that these lessons have been learned but it doesn't appear that's necessarily the case (laughs) so not
1: from what I've been listening to anyways
0: which is why we do these conversations yeah um as you think about kind of like the path forward in in dairy in particular, what are some of your hopes for, it could be policy changes on the horizon, it could be different evolutions you'd like to see in the industry. What, what comes to mind as you think about hopes for the future of your industry?
1: I really hope that policy-wise, I hope we get immigration figured out. I think that is a huge one. And obviously, I'm very open to immigration when it is done correctly mm-hmm. um, these huge thousands and thousands of cow dairies depend on those workers because there's a lot of people in the United States mm-hmm. sitting at home right. to get paid to not work and there's a lot of cows out there that need to be milked and people that are immigrating here mainly from Mexico mm-hmm. they're willing to do the work Okay. Which is great. They are some of the best, hardest-working people I've ever met. I worked at a 1200 cow dairy right out of college, and those people were amazing. Um, They did a lot of hard work that there was a lot of people that were too lazy or not willing to do. So that would be the number one policy change that I would like to see. Um, On a personal level, I don't know exactly... What the future of this farm holds As I said I honestly think that in my lifetime I will see Regional dairies Is how I picture it It's really scary to think about it this way But just how fast Things are evolving in this Dairy industry I could see Some huge mega farms In one area Supplying milk for a whole region Mm -hmm. I don't Some farmers might call me crazy for thinking that way, but I honestly don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities. Um, There are robotics going in. Right. And while they work well, I feel, on a small scale, like farms my size, Mm -hmm. one robot can really only milk about 60 cows. Okay. So to put them in on huge dairy farms, it just really doesn't make economic sense. Um, The dairy farm that I... <clears throat> used to work at after college they actually just put in a carousel parlor which is a big circle okay where the cows go around and they still need people to milk the cows but they have like robotic arms that clean and prep the teats of the cow okay so the person just has to attach the unit okay and i could see a lot more stuff like that happening to reduce labor costs but you're never going to get away from the labor of milking cows, I don't think.
0: Right. Yeah, it, well, that you're you bring up a number of good points, but that the technological innovations of different type has allowed greater scale, and the question is, to your point, like how does that play out? I don't think anyone completely knows, but it does seem like greater scale is now enabled, and that's going to play out in one way, shape, or form. The issue in immigration, you bring up a lot of good points. It, it's fascinating. It seems like something that is so commonsensical it could be dealt with so so easily but you know the american people uh love immigrants they want to see immigration done legally and correctly in a balanced manner that brings in people that want to become a part of the fabric of this country to this country
1: exactly
0: and it's it's so much goodwill has been spoiled by our politicians who have allowed illegal immigration to occur in a way that has both disadvantaged uh Immigrants that have come here and not on legal status. So number one, they put them in a difficult spot. Number two, they've taken advantage of people politically and economically because people aren't here on illegal status, and that's causing all sorts of other problems. And the reality is that immigration is a good thing. It brings ideas. It brings people who want to work. People who want to, you know, fight for the country's future. Uh, but you got to do that the right way, and you got to do it legally. And I, the, the issue that I think we run into is there's too many politicians that are bought and paid for by various interests, both corporate and also uh, extreme political, the extreme politics of the left that think that it helps them uh, uh, when it comes to voting, that want to see people brought here illegally. They think it's advantageous for different reasons. So, for all these reasons, common sense needs to rule today and push back on it.
1: One thing that I did want to mention is I really appreciate you coming out here and talking to me and other farmers, because that is something that I have not always seen from conservative policymakers.
0: These conversations have to take place for this reason, that farming is complicated. It can be uncomfortable to talk about it, right? Because it is. It's a complicated business, and the answers aren't easy. And I think that for a lot of policymakers, that you put them in that conversation where there is no clear A to B to C to D. It's easier to kind of like go to talking points and pretend this isn't happening. And the reality is this is a massive part of our state's economy. It's going to be for the foreseeable. That's not going away, it might change. And the question is, to my mind at least, why I think these conversations are so important, it's um, how do you strategically manage the change? And you look at manufacturing in our state, right? Like, great parallel in the sense that our policymakers largely took their eye off the ball, coming out of post-World War II economy, and a fair amount of Wisconsin manufacturing has been hollowed out. It's been wiped out. And I always tell people, sure, some amount of reintroduction of competition was going to happen after World War II, of course. And that competition would balance its way out over time. But it didn't have to happen the way it did. And that's in large part because we didn't have strategic trade. We gave away advantages we didn't need to. And the changes that happened in places like Milwaukee and Detroit, that were just more or less overnight in the grand scheme of things, wiped out entire portions of our economy, destroyed cities overnight. And, you know, putting it one way or the other, the political class kind of patted us all on the head and said, take your medicine and shut up. And here we are in farming. It's, it's, The effects of trade and the effects of being strategic and how we manage these processes and these changes hasn't quite happened in the same way, but it's happening almost on a slower evolution. And so that's why I think you have to have these conversations, understand the issues, hear directly from the farmers, what are the challenges? Here's how I can see this happening. Here's what I think makes sense. Here's what doesn't.
1: Exactly, the conversations are hard yeah. These are the things that We as farmers have to think about And we have to answer these tough questions Every single day Right. We don't have the chance to hide In our offices and just right. ignore the question We're out here Facing it and having to live through it And that's why I appreciate When other people Are trying to help us The ones yeah. that actually can push through changes That will trickle down And affect right. us
0: well, that's, you yeah, know, well, that's why we appreciate you doing this and we're happy to do it. It's just thought is through the podcast, you know, do what we can to educate people and to share with them important stories. But again, the things that you're talking about are second nature to you. and might seem elemental at times because you have to deal with it every day, but there are so many people who aren't being exposed to it because it's just not part of their daily life. And Again, I don't think our news media has done a great job of really articulating what is happening and why. And our thought is if we can just bring it directly to people, it helps to set the record straight and and understand it. And if you can't have these kind of tough conversations, um, knowing full well that we'll leave today with a lot of stuff unresolved, right? We're not going to figure out the future of farming, right?
1: (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Go, Go
0: figure, right? But it's so important because now at least... And I think I've seen this in every farmer I've ever talked to. Pragmatic people, they get it. You don't need to tell them the challenges that they face. Um, They get it, and they want to understand that you're at least thinking critically about what they're facing. So in all the conversations we've had at various farms, we've had a talk about labeling and how that affects product and the ability to sell to consumers and and how it just affects consumer perception. Talk to me a bit about labeling in your industry and what your thoughts are.
1: Sure. Um, There's so many buzzwords Mm -hmm. out there. So all natural literally means whatever the consumer wants it to mean. (laughs) It truly does. Like, Can you define it? I I cannot. I cannot define it. (laughs) So as farmers, we say literally whatever the consumer wants it to mean, that's what it means. But as the consumer looking at it, you say, wow, this must be healthy for me. (laughs) You know, so, but is it really? And then if you want to go, we can talk about organics if Mm -hmm. you want. Yes. So our farm is not organic. There is absolutely nothing wrong with buying organic milk. Mm -hmm. The difference is organic cows, or Cows that make organic milk have never been treated with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that non-organic milk has antibiotics in it. Absolutely not. As we talked about when we were doing the farm tour, they take a sample of that milk before it even leaves the farm Mm -hmm. to check for antibiotics. I use antibiotics in my cattle because I want them healthy. Mm -hmm. If my cow is sick, I want to have the option of treating her to keep her healthy right if she has an infection in her udder which is called mastitis i want to be able to pull her milk out of my bulk tank treat her get her feeling better get the antibiotics out of the system and get her back into the milking herd right versus just shipping her and sending her down the road right because i can't treat her with anything So that is why I choose not to be organic. I do not drink organic milk, but I buy my milk from the store just like everybody else. Right. Um, But at the same time, like, if you choose to drink organic milk, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. I just don't want moms out there (laughs) to feel guilty that they don't want to spend $6 a gallon on organic milk and they're somehow doing a disservice to their children. Right. Absolutely not. It has the exact same vitamins and minerals and it's so healthy to give to your kids no matter which one you buy.
0: Well, I think that's the the commentary we've heard from so many different farmers and it's really the attitude of like, it is a market, like produce Mm -hmm. the way that you think you should produce. And if it makes sense for you to be an organic farmer, it's perfectly fine. But the perception issue that can come across, which is that this is healthy, this is less healthy, is a a problem. And it's reinforced by various media narratives and and all the rest. And none of this, again, to your point, is an argument against organic farming. That's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But what I think we've tried to get across through these conversations is really using different tools in different ways, and there's different outputs to it. And like you said, if I understood you correct, uh, your cow gets an infection in an organic farm, you can't treat them the same way, probably that cow is going to become a hamburger
1: is exactly. more or less the
0: output, right? Exactly. And that's part of what drives up the cost of organic farming.
1: Exactly. Is
0: just that, okay.
1: Yeah, and those cows probably are going to produce less pounds per cow per mm-hmm. day because all of their feed has to be organic also. Mm-hmm. So, and when you do that, there's are certain things that you can't use specific types of seed that you have to buy right everything has to be organic and start it's to very expensive right yeah
0: right yeah and i think that's an important part again it's, it's not an argument against one type of farming but it's it's saying as a consumer don't give up on certain products don't buy into certain narratives do the real you know the education educate exactly. yourself and understand um Farmers have different tools available to them. There's trade-offs to doing it. Mm -hmm. That affects efficiency. I think on the tour we talked about this a bit, consumers can say they want one thing perception-wise, and then when they see what really has to happen, maybe they're not quite so happy with it. Exactly,
1: and along those lines, we can talk about GMOs, too. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no, please do.
1: Yeah, so there is no such thing as a genetically modified strawberry. So when your strawberries at the store say GMO-free, mm-hmm. yes, they are. because There's an alternative? Yes, exactly. Of course they're <laughs> GMO-free because there is not a genetically modified strawberry out there. Right. And I think that's just, in some ways, like, that company taking advantage of the consumer. Of the consumer, right. And it's right. also, the consumer isn't being educated. Yep. You know, like, yes, it's part the consumer has to do their own homework, but at the same time, like, going to the store, they're not going to look up their phone and say, oh, really, like, could they ever be genetically modified? What would happen to me if I ate a genetically modified strawberry? They don't do that. They expect us, they trust us, and we want them to trust us. Right. But when they're deceived through labeling, that becomes a problem. Right. So corn, for instance can be genetically modified Mm -hmm. we use genetically modified corn because we want it to be resistant against some diseases against some insects we want the stalk to have strength we want it to be drought resistant all of those things you can put genes together and make a really solid plant right that produces a lot of corn right and with an ever-growing population, we need to make a lot of food. But yet the amount of farmland keeps diminishing. Dumbling, right. We can't have non-GMO seed and expect to feed the world. It's never going to happen.
0: Right. Well, that's an argument and a great one, and it's one we've heard elsewhere too. It's Efficiency is at stake here, and so you can talk all you want about water usage and you know making sure that we're taking care of the environment and so on that's great good objective to have well gmo products can help do that and again you know follow the science pay attention to the research there's no indication that this is unhealthy but it can be a heck of a lot more efficient and productive and it's a good thing for consumers remember
1: exactly and that's it probably doesn't personally affect them They don't see it as, we need to make as many bushels of corn per acre in order to sustain our farm, but also, you know, to sell for reasons of feeding the world. They don't view it like that. They view it as, can I buy it from the grocery store? Right. And when it doesn't become available at the grocery store to them, that is when there is panic.
0: Or when the price jacks up. Just the point where it's uncomfortable or... Correct. yeah, and that's, again, I think that's why this conversation is so important is to understand this. And those labels do play an effect into efficiency, cost, and, again, consumer perception. And if they get the wrong idea of what's healthy and what's not healthy, it can have big effects on the industry.
1: And one thing we talked a lot about when we were in D.C. Um, talking to policymakers is the term milk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can non-milk products be labeled, be labeled as, as milk? milk. And Talk the, about that. I'm, yeah, The reason why we think it's so important is that milk has so many nutrients mm-hmm. packed into one glass, mm-hmm. where as almond beverage mm-hmm. and soy <laughs> beverage, they don't have that, but mm-hmm. they're using milk's good name as right. a crutch for their product. And they're liquid and they're white.
0: Exactly.
1: Oh, it's almond milk? It must be just as good for me as regular milk. If you look at the label, there's so many additives Mm -hmm. to that, whereas milk has one thing in it. It's milk. It's a pure product. You want to be all natural? Mm -hmm. There it is. Can we slap that sticker on every (laughs) gallon (laughs) of milk, all natural? Right. Because you can't do that on almond milk or soy milk or whatever they want to come up with. We work hard and we have to go through a lot to get our milk to the processing plant right and make our consumers happy. That's another thing that we have to do on this farm is through our co-op, we are part of a farm program. It's Farmers Assuring Responsible Manage okay. management. And every 3 years we get audited where they come in and they look at our The co-op
0: team. does. Comes yes in. okay yep. a
1: representative from this program it's a national program mm-hmm. um and we get audited and they look at our farm up and down and make sure we're taking care of our animals making sure that our milk is a good product mm-hmm. everything's clean because that is what the consumers are demanding mm-hmm. from the companies they want to buy from right so then Dannon or Yoplait or Kraft they'll go to the co-op and say well if your farms aren't going to be a part of this program then we don't want to accept your milk Mm -hmm. so even though we're putting out a good product already we have to go the extra step just to get a piece of paper right to make the consumer feel good
0: right and it's a good point right when you're a new product is introduced as competition with the same name that doesn't face those same combination of just market and regulatory hurdles that you do. Plus the products just simply not produced the same way. Um, and you know, it's interesting, right? Like elsewhere, there's trademark issues and and so on and so forth that would stop one company from outright copying a a brand name per se. But this like attempt to replace a product is interesting and you know, especially yeah. when you're dealing with a ton of regulation already. Exactly. You're kind of boxed into what you are in part by the government, the state and federal level. And someone else can just come in and say, I'm going to bypass all that. <laughs> and I'm going to introduce this with kind of a vibe around it that says it's super healthy and yeah. you should just choose us. Yeah. That's a tough place to be. It's um, it's
1: really frustrating because we fight every day to put out a safe and healthy product. We right. fight to get our consumers to trust us. Right. And then they just slap the word milk onto their product and they have just the same amount of trust. Right. And they're trying to push for more trust, claiming that they're healthier because it's plant based than all the work that we've had to do and we haven't gotten paid a cent more right. for it.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and none of this is against, like, the production. I mean, if people want to drink almond beverage, like, go to, but the idea is, again, that they should not be able to substitute a product and basically confuse the consumer
1: in exactly. the that they have. Right. And that's exactly how we were talking with GMOs. Right. It's confusing the consumer. It's giving a name to something that it's not. Right, It is not milk. Right. I'm still confused at how they can even claim that (laughs) it
0: is. I'm reminded I was somewhere with my son uh, out in Jackson County like a week ago. We were leaving an event and we walked by a car and uh, we were on our way to the afterwards we went to the house on the rock which is a whole nother thing that we could spend four hours talking about <laughs> have you ever been
1: i have one time
0: it is an experience and maybe we should do a podcast just on the house on the rock you it is probably the,
1: should <laughs> it is
0: there's not enough explanation of what that is and how it came to be but that's a different story but we walked past a uh in the parking lot of ford mustang and my son stopped and stared at it and it was like a and i have nothing against the car but it was like a, it was like a hatchback and. In, it was not a Ford Mustang, and I said, "There's a point at which you have left the originals. <laughs> you just given yeah. a new name. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. not a Ford Mustang anymore. It's, a, it's something else, whatever that something else might be." And that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about here. This is not milk. It's a different product. That's fine, but don't don't take your pro- the other product's name
1: as exactly. You so. Yep.
0: so, well, let me ask you. So I asked you before about like kind of the challenges and what you'd like to see in the future of your industry. What um, what makes you hopeful about the future of the dairy industry in Wisconsin?
1: Because there is so much passion behind what farmers do every mm-hmm. day. Like I have no doubt we will always be the dairy state. We have the greatest farmers, the greatest people. And in Wisconsin, people support farmers. People love driving in the country Mm -hmm. and seeing tractors in the fields. Not going down the road, they get a little annoyed (laughs) about that, but they love seeing them in the fields. They love driving past the big red barns and they love seeing Mm -hmm. the cattle out there grazing. Like, they may not, they may themselves be a few generations separated from the farm, but they love the idea of farms. Right. Right. And so between that and how much farmers absolutely love doing their job, we're always going to be a huge agricultural state. And that's what gives me hope. And my daughter, I'm not sure if she'll really want to go into farming. She tells me she wants to be a bone nurse. Okay. She's very Fair set enough. on it.
0: Fair enough. That's However, very specific. Yeah, very specific. She's walking yeah. by us now as this is being yes. said. So.
1: Yes, my mom is a radiology tech. Got so it. <laughs> Got it. So she knows proud. exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. But my son, however, he's 19 months old, and his first word was tractor. Okay. So tractors and bobcats are <laughs> everything. Lawnmowers, anything that moves, yep. he is absolutely obsessed, and that gives me hope and drive to keep mm-hmm. doing this. And when I have a hard day, my dad says, "Rachel, five years from now." Look at how old your kids are going to be. Yeah. And I was definitely that age when I was out there working and helping out. So, you know, to, like, just push through the days when they're young, like, when it's really hard and you're not sleeping a lot, but you still got to get up in the morning. Like, you're doing it for that next generation.
0: Right. At some point, you're right. Kids do become a force multiplier instead of a force detractor. It does happen, I promise you. (laughs) (laughs) It will happen.
1: Uh, You just have to give it some time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and Rachel, this is why we appreciate you doing this, because your conversation and what you shared here today is so important for Wisconsin. to understand, like, how you keep those farms healthy, and yes, they're beautiful to drive by, and it's a huge part of our state's cultural fabric, but they have to be economically productive at the end of the day, and that's yeah. why I think this conversation is so important. Yeah. So, thank you for having us to Simply Crazy Farm here in Jefferson County. This was a great conversation. If you'll have The Right Idea podcast come back, we'll come back um, sometime in the future. We don't know when, Um, but it was a pleasure to sit down with you and have the chance to catch up.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming out and touring it and being willing to talk to
0: us. We're happy to do so and we'll see you again soon. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in The Right Idea podcast. Make sure to subscribe to The Right Idea podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher,